Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's great to see all of you here, and um, I hope those of you who are here for class assignment uh, feel like this was a worthwhile uh, uh, endeavor. I look forward to hearing all of your reactions uh, to the topic today, which is, uh, deals with media and race. And uh, this is my first time visiting Research Unplugged, but I understand I'm just going to set the stage and then we have a discussion. And I feel that I could learn a lot from all of your insights, too, so I hope that you feel free to jump in. And you should feel free, too, to jump in um, while I'm talking, uh, if you have questions, because it's really, really three brief things that I want to address. One, I want to address the issue of the nature of the portrayals in media. Then I want to talk about the effects of these portrayals on viewers' attitudes and stereotyping. And then what I'd like to do is talk about how we respond to these portrayals. So I realize that the talk is titled uh, "Influence: How Media Stereotypes Influence Viewers' Perceptions, but really I'm talking about content, effects, and perceptions here. Um, my research is in the area of media effects, which deals with the psychological effects of media on viewers. And... Um, I've been looking at media stereotyping for quite a while now, and a lot of my examples um, when it comes to race deal with African-Americans, in particular in African-Americans and crime, because that's been my focus. But I'm hoping that you can apply some of the things that I'm saying to other racial or ethnic groups or other oppressed groups in our culture. So in terms of the stereotypes, if you look... If you look, and people have looked over the years at the way that race is portrayed in the media, um, early, early content analyses tended to show that African Americans, for example, were absolutely not represented at all. There were no black characters in, uh, in television. <clears throat> and I'm talking mainly about television, but we could apply this, hey, we could apply this to um, film, motion pictures, etc. Now, um, since that time, of course, the proportion of African-American characters in media has increased a great deal, but other uh, racial and ethnic groups are still in the non-existent category, if you will. So Asian characters are vastly underrepresented on television compared to the proportion of people in the U.S., for example, who are Asian. Uh, same thing with American Indians or Latino characters. So, you know, this issue of non-representation is certainly still an issue today. Um, for African-American characters, the stereotype really, the stere the, when African-American characters were um, portrayed initially, it was clearly in very derogatory roles, such as Amos and Andy and so forth. And I like to think, and researchers generally do suggest, that these sorts of clearly stereotyped negative portrayals are changing but there are still some portrayals, and I think they're very important ones for us to consider, that are very prevalent today. And I would argue that these portrayals are most common in news, uh, news content or reality-based content. I've done some work on reality um, cop shows, like Cops and America's Most Wanted and those kinds of, of shows. And there are two, and I'm talking mainly about African-American characters now, and there are two um, stereotypes that I think are particularly no noteworthy. Um, one is the stereotype of being impoverished or, or, or lazy. Um, and researchers, Marty Gillens is a good example, um, has shown that it's not just in news stories that African Americans are overrepresented as 
impoverished, but the way that poverty is portrayed when it's associated with African-Americans is much more negative than the way it's portrayed when it's associated with whites. And so if you look at um, publications like Newsweek or Time um, magazine, which she has done systematically, then when there's a photograph of a white person in a story about poverty, that's, uh, that person, it's often a story about the working poor, someone trying to get ahead, where, whereas when it's an African-American portrayed, it's often um, about um, undeserving uh, welfare cheats and things and, of this nature. So poverty is certainly one issue. In fact, if you're interested, uh, Marty Gillens uh, wrote a, a book called Why Americans Hate Welfare, and he, in that book, argued that um, really m- much resistance to the issue of welfare is a reflection of, of racism toward African Americans in particular. The other um, type of portrayal that, I, that I've been really interested in has to do with the way in which African Americans are associated with crime and aggression in particular. And there are lots of examples of this, but if you are interested in it, I would encourage you to read the work of a, of a friend and colleague of mine named Travis Dixon, who, who's at the University of Illinois. And he's done systematic analyses showing that of, of the way that crime is portrayed on television in Los Angeles. And he's, he has shown that it's not just that, it's, it's not just that African Americans are commonly featured as criminals in the news, but it's, but it's vastly different from actual arrest statistics. So African Americans are overrepresented as perpetrators, whereas whites are overrepresented in the news as victims. Um, another researcher uh, named Robert Entman has also done analyses of the way that crime is portrayed, and he wants to say it's not just the numbers either in the way that crime is portrayed, but the manner in which crime and race intersect in news. And so he's shown that, for example, African American um, uh, African Americans in news in the Chicago area are more likely to be shown being handcuffed by the police, held physically held by the police. There are fewer pro-defense sound bites, uh, et cetera for African-American characters than there are for white characters. Um, I, I, I was talking with some folks here um, uh, as people were coming in, and uh, I, I was saying that my, my in-laws are from, all my in-laws are from New Orleans. And so that's been very, you know, I've been following that a great deal. Um, and uh, looking at the news uh, coverage of, of, of this uh, tragedy, and just as an anecdotal evidence of the association of African Americans and crime, I'm sure many of you heard the anecdote of, uh, and if you, if you haven't seen it, I actually have a photograph here if you want to look later. It's very small. But it's, um, there were two photographs featured on the Yahoo website from two different news sources. But both of them, I could have used them in an experiment. They were so similar. It was people w- wading through chest-deep water with food, now, it was, uh, they were identical sorts of photos, except in one instance it was African-American and the other it was uh, two whites. And the, but the caption was telling, and if you haven't seen it, when the, when the, whites, the whites, it was about how these people had found food uh, at a grocery store and they were bringing it home. And with the African-American uh, person, it was, that it was looting. So looting versus finding. And I think 
that that's just a just a, a telling example. But there are lots of other examples, anecdotal sort of examples too. The the infamous Willie Horton ad, where George Bush Sr. Um, was had an ad um, attacking Michael Dukakis's uh, stance on prison furloughs, and they used this picture of of an African-American man as illustrative of what happens. Look what happens if we're soft on crime. Just playing into this um, sort of stereotype. So those are some of the just broad um, sorts of portrayals. And there are many, many others, certainly. But those are just to kind of give you an example of the types of portrayals that people are are, um, looking at and are interested in and are concerned about in terms of how viewers are affected um, by consumption of these, of these um, images. So with that in mind, I just wanted to mention two ways, and there are, are undoubtedly additional ways, but two ways that researchers think that we as viewers may be influenced by uh, repeated viewing of these sorts of, of images. And one, one way is just simply that it influences our perceptions of social reality. This is largely the work of, uh, of, a, of a man named George Gerbner. It's called Cultivation Research. And the idea is that if I'm a heavy television viewer and what I'm seeing in the media is inconsistent with what re- the real world is like, um, my perceptions of the real world can become distorted. Um, by what I see, I begin to believe that, for example, there's a greater, um, that crime is more rampant than it actually is, and that African-American involvement in crime is more common than it actually is. Now, this perspective, which is called cultivation, assumes that uh, these sorts of effects occur after long-term exposure, you know, like looking repeatedly, cumulative exposure. And and that certainly makes sense, but for a social scientist, that's a difficult um, thing to test. Because as much as I might like to get, uh, you know, a toddler in my lab <laughs> and expose them until they're, you know, a teenager to what I think uh, should be uh, affecting them, I certainly unethically I can't do I can't do that. So what happens is this sort of research on cultivation. Um, has often been criticized because it's very hard to say for sure if the media caused the attitudes, all right, because I'm just looking at correlations. How much, how much television do you view, for example, and what are your attitudes about race? Um, so I don't know if the, if the media affected the attitudes or it's very plausible to suggest that the attitudes, people who have certain attitudes, are are want to view certain sorts of content more, and that's why the relationship exists. So it has been criticized, but I will say that um, within the last several years, there's a researcher named L.J. Schramm, and his work is looking at maybe, maybe, this, maybe this criticism is, is valid, but why don't we get in and see what's going on, how people make judgments about social reality as a way to disentangle and pinpoint the mechanisms that may uh, help explain how media exposure can uh, affect our perceptions. And basically what he says um, is that if I asked any of you what, um, what percent of crime in the U.S. is violent crime, give me an answer. 
Well, what happens is when we, when we make these sorts of judgments, we search our memory for examples. And if examples come to mind easily for us, that, then what happens is the ease of the retrieval of that example leads to inflated estimates. If it's easy for me to think of an example, it must be fairly prevalent. And he's found evidence for that. And applied to media and race, what that means is that when, when asked what percent of African Americans will be arrested, for example, if we have lots of examples that easily come to mind from the media, then we will begin to think that it's more prevalent, presumably. Um, the, uh, and this is a long-term effect, by the way. Um, theoretically, it's assumed to be a long-term effect. But there are other effects that are assumed to be fairly short-lived. And one effect um, uh, that, that, that uh, people talk about a great deal is called priming. And the idea here is that we all have thoughts that are connected. Similar thoughts are connected. If we played a game and I said to you, I'm going to say a word, and you say the first word that comes to mind. So I say beach. Then you might say sand or water or you know, shells or something like this because you connect them in your mind. And once all of these thoughts are primed, so one element, I give you one element and it primes all sorts of other thoughts, then, then what's, what's likely to happen is that while these thoughts are still running through your head, then you'll be um, more likely to interpret new information through this lens. Okay, so... Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. One thing that I study, I study sometimes, often, are scary, are scary media and entertainment. I study this, and I've watched probably too many scary films in my life. And and State College, you know, is a is a is a fairly safe place to be. And sometimes my husband and I have been known to forget to lock our door. So we came home one time, and I went to open the door, and the door just opened on its own. For me. Having watched a lot of scary movies, I was, I said, oh my gosh, you know, there's a mad killer. In <laughs> and my, my, my husband, of course, he's saying, oh boy, you are, are you a Fruit Loop? You know, come on in. And um, so we, we came in and usually the first thing we do is pick up the phone and see if we have any voicemail. I picked up the phone. It was dead. That just sealed it for me. I was like, oh my gosh. He said, I'll, I'll, go up, I'll go upstairs and see if the phone upstairs is dead. And I'm, I'm hanging on to his leg, you know, afraid he can't go upstairs, <laughs> you know. Well, applied to this issue of media and race, what happens is that if we see and we can repeatedly pair images of any sort of images, but here I'm talking about images of African Americans, um, for example, we pair images of African Americans in crime, African Americans in crime. First of all, that can, for, in the short term, cause um, if I see an, uh, if I see crime and 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 uh, on television, then later when I encounter an African American outside of the media viewing situation, I be maybe likely to also think violence, you know, and it can. And it can lead us to interpret ambiguous stimuli as consistent with those primes. So, for example, a police officer seeing an individual reaching for a wallet may be primed because of media to think it's a gun. And I think this is a very serious, serious issue. And the thing about this particular one 
that I think um, is crucially important is that this issue of priming doesn't necessarily mean that only people who are racist can be affected by media. Okay, We live in a culture where we're all familiar with the stereotypes that are there, regardless of whether or not we endorse them. And, and so what happens is that I've got this cognitive structure that can be primed regardless of how I feel about it, okay? And so what this means is that we're all vulnerable, regardless of what our, our attitudes may be, because this sort of priming can happen in a split-second, millisecond manner, and it can have profound influences on behavior. So I've talked about this, the stereotypes that are there and just a couple of, of influences, cultivation and priming. And then the last thing that I'll just mention, and then I'd like to have a discussion with you, is, um, is our reactions to media, how we respond to it. Because, you know, a lot of times when media effects researchers are talking about uh, how we're affected, it almost sounds like we think that we're just these zombies and, you know, the media injects some image and we respond without any sort of cognizance. Um, but a lot of research has suggested that there's a tendency for us as viewers to interpret content, to expose ourselves to content, but to interpret content in a way that's consistent with our existing beliefs or attitudes or opinions. Uh, so um, so uh, as, a, as a case in point, and this is just a classic example, uh, many of you, there are a lot of young people here, so Maybe you haven't seen, but all in the family. Um, <laughs> y'all remember that? <laughs> Some of you remember that. <laughs> Help me out here. It's on reruns. Nick at night. Okay. So all in the family, if you haven't seen it, um, <clears throat> the purpose of the program was, one purpose of the program was to expose stereotyping, not just of race, but race was a huge part of it, but um, uh, expose stereotyping of race and gender and and uh, politic, and the main character was Archie Bunker, and he was a bigot extraordinaire. I mean, he he called he he called his son-in-law meathead. He called his wife dingbat. He used racial slurs in a way that was just unprecedented, uh, uh, you know. And the point was to to expose it, to make fun of it, and and in the hope that by talking about it, <clears throat> we could help reduce it. I, I think now. Uh, Actually, the, uh, the NAACP gave All in the Family its Image Award. And um, CBS was, had gotten some criticism because there, ra- there were racial slurs in the program. But CBS did a survey and said, look, you know, um, the, the vast majority of the population reports really liking this show. Um, so it, we're not offending people. We're doing what we were hoping to do. And, you know, so all is good. Well, some researchers, Vidmar and Rokic, came along and they said, you know, maybe everybody likes the show because they don't think it's about the same thing. And so they did research that showed that people who scored low on the measure of racial prejudice that that they employed um, interpreted the show in the way that it was intended. Um, But people who scored high on racial prejudice, they loved the show just as much, but they thought Archie was the hero. They interpreted him as telling it like it is and so forth. So... You know, so what I'm suggesting here is that even when media content 
makes deliberate attempts to address oppression, it can be, still be interpreted in a way that's consistent with prevailing stereotypes. Um, I've been doing research, just to give you another example, on the issue of memory and what we remember seeing in the news. Um, and what I find is that when people read, let's say, uh, a series of n- brief newspaper articles, news briefs, I would call them, they read a bunch of them and they feature African-Americans and whites and lots of different types of stories. What happens is that when they're asked later to remember, who did you see in the, sto- in the stories? Was this guy associated with this story or this story or this story? What happens is people are um, likely to misremember and misidentify African-American men as being featured in the crime stories even when they they weren't featured at all in any of the stories. So so, um, the issue of how we're affected is one thing, but the issue of how we interpret media content and remember and and perceive it, I think, is another. So here are my take-home sound bites. (laughs) My take-home sound bites, I guess would be, are the media to blame for this? Well, you know, are they culpable here? Well, I mean, I definitely believe that the media and reporters and news outlets and, and entertainment, the entertainment in- industry needs to be aware of these stereotypes and there needs to take greater responsibility for the kinds of images that, are, that, we, that we consume in the media. And I think, I think that... I, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that um, reporters, for example, deliberately deliver these stereotypes. But what I am suggesting uh, is that these stereotypes can find their way into the news, even when, when it's not intentional. And we, and we need to be more aware of that. But at the same time, I want to say that we as viewers need to be more cognizant, too. I mean, if we, if we walk away and we're remembering and interpreting media content in a way that's, cons- even when it's completely egalitarian in its portrayal, uh, that if we're walking away interpreting co- content as consistent with stereotypes, that I think we, have too, have a responsibility to be more cognizant of what we're, what we're looking at and to try to uh, be more critical in our, view- in our viewing. And so on that note, maybe this is an, this is a, I'm, I'm PR for the College of Communications here, but I will say that I firmly believe that the final thing that this implies is that teaching children and adults too, but uh, teaching people media literacy and critical viewing skills is huge. And I just read yesterday, day before, uh, a very recent um, study that came out of Ball State that just used observational methods to see how much time people spend with media. And on an average day, and me, I'm saying broadly defined, it can be newspapers and iP- you know, iPods and everything else, but it was nine hours a day that we spend with media. That's a huge amount of time. And admittedly, Half of these nine hours were spent doing other things simultaneously, cooking while I'm listening to the radio, for example. But what I'm suggesting is that we are awash in media. And it's very interesting and 
of concern to me that we don't, that in the schools, we, for good reason, <clears throat> we teach students how to, how to read a novel, you know, how to understand a poem. And all of these things are important. But, but, but the same thing should be there for media, how to respond to media. And I think that's crucially important. So I'm pro-media literacy, critical viewing. And if any of you work in the schools and want to talk with me about how to, how to get that going, I'm, I'm more than, than happy to do so. So that's, that's this area. And I think I've overstepped my, I was only supposed to go for 10 minutes. <laughs> but um, thanks for your attention. And I look forward to talking to you.